Welcome to Wrestling with God Show, the podcast where we grapple with big questions about faith, religion, and life. I'm Irish McMahon, and I'm here with a guy who has a front row seat to all the drama of humanity. You know, the major events in people's lives and the wisdom that flows from these moments. He's my friend and Irish Catholic priest, Father Len McMillan. Hey, Father Len. Hey, Irish. So, Father Len, you've told me that some of the most inspiring and revealing moments in life and that you've kind of been fascinated with and that you've witnessed uh, to some degree are near-death experiences. So let's talk a little bit about what we can learn about life from these near-death experiences that you've read about, witnessed, and whatever. I think you have some really interesting insight. Okay, so I've met a couple of people who had near-death experiences. They amazed me. But actually, in high school, I read this book by Dr. Moody, Life After Life, and then he had a volume two. And he was just basically this doctor who starts to collect all these near-death experiences. And I love that reading. So much so that on almost every book on near-death experience, I love reading them. And... I think it's a great issue to wrestle with. Now, the shocking part is the first account of kind of a near-death experience is Plato. Plato recounts in his Republic this Armenian soldier, Ur, who's wounded in battle and mistaken for dead. And Ur was placed on a funeral pyre, and he's revived as the flames were lit and tells a story of going to a realm beyond earth, where this beautiful place where the souls were judged for the good and the bad they've done. And this actually was the inspiration for Plato's analogy of the cave, that true reality is not here, but is this place of light that is real. And this is only a dim reflection. That is the place of true reality. Life on earth is just a pale reflection. So in one sense, Western philosophy and science started because of this search and questioning of life. Do this ancient near-death experience. Plato's philosophy sparks this whole scientific philosophical revolution. But near-death experiences of life after death always has this theme that life after death is more real than earth, Hmm. more colors, more real, uh, four dimensions. I don't even know what that means, but whatever. (laughs) It sounds good. Yeah. It sounds big and full and rich, like something we can't experience here. Exactly. Four dimensions. That's a fourth dimension. It's a great music group from the 60s. Uh, (laughs) No, I think think that was the fifth dimension, Father Lynn. Well, that's even bigger. (laughs) But near-death experiences are a type of evidence of heaven in my book. And those near-death experiences are also gifts from God to color in the picture revealed by prophets and mystics and to whet our appetite for more uh, just as it did for Plato. So my hope is that we'll fall in love with life a little bit more and seeing how precious it is by really looking at near-death experiences. So now, in one sense, you can't prove heaven. So yes, you can't prove heaven using 19th century rationalism that only believes on what is measurable. 
yet isn't thousands and thousands of people's testimony over every known culture and every place, a type of evidence. And I mention this uh, because I get tired of the hypocrisy of atheists. And what I mean by that is that atheists like to say, oh, we're rational. We look at evidence. Well, no, you only permit evidence that supports your conclusion that there is no life after death. But isn't thousands of years of people's experience and evidence and personal testimonies and children's testimonies of this near-death experience, a type of evidence that you should attune to? There's hundreds of stories from doctors and nurses dealing with patients that are a type of evidence. And to me, that's just refusing to wrestle with evidence. Don't say that you work by evidence when you exclude anything that challenges you. Father Lynn, how do the atheists dismiss all these experiences? Do, do they claim it's a dream or it's a, I mean, that it's, I mean, what do they say? How do they dismiss it? Most of them just say, oh, that's just the last gas of the mind trying to piece things together. But dozens of studies on near-death ex- experiences, they are a type of evidence that blows all that away. There's this one book uh, by Dr. Alexander. He was said he was a agnostic, non-practicing, all that other stuff. But after his, he's a neurosurgeon, after his near-death experience, he considers that experience as dogmatic evidence. So let's look at the evidence. Now, surprisingly, in this Gallup poll with modern medicine, with modern medicine, there's more near-death experiences because you can pull people back. And 4.2% of the population has reported a near-death experience. That's actually pretty big. Or this Dr. Michael Sambas, this cardiologist, heard this presentation on Moody's book, Life After Life, and thought it was complete nonsense. So he was challenged by the presenter, well, ask your patients. If you doubt me, you ask your patients. So he started to ask his patients. And he's shocked. So he publishes his finding in this book called Recollections of Death. And one patient, Peter, told Dr. Michael exactly what he saw. Before talking to Peter and scores like him, Dr. Michael said, I didn't believe that there is anything such as a near-death experiences. These people recounted details of the resuscitation. So Dr. Michael went on to conduct this study comparing resuscitation description of people claiming to have near-death experiences versus a control group of heart patients who had their hearts stopped. And of course, near-death experience people had more accurate descriptions and the control group could only guess what happened. And this Mm. study has been duplicated many times. There's a five-year study in the United Kingdom There's a collection of -of out-of-body stories of people describing, noticing small, tiny details, scuff shoes, uh, uh, where this was placed, dentures being placed in the bottom drawer, all when they're supposedly dead. Or Jay Holden, this professor of psychology, studied 93 patients who claimed to have verifiable observations while of their physical, out of their physical bodies. And 92% were completely accurate. 6% had some errors and only 1% 
was erroneous. Or Dr. Jeffrey Law, he read Moody's book, Life After Life, and he went out to dinner with some friends saying, ah, this is just complete ridiculousness. And this woman at the table, one of his friends, Sheila, she tells a story that she had an out-of-body near-death experience. So he starts his own research and is shocked by what he finds. And he asks, isn't this the one big question we all have? So shouldn't we study and test near-death experiences? And, you know, he's right. And there's all these studies. Stanford did the study of near-death experiences of children because they're very nonverbal. And they did, I forget, it's like 4,000 or 5,000 children who had near-death experiences. And, you know, most of the time when you have a near-death experience, you go through the tunnel and there's this bright, bright light. You know what children, because children are inarticulate, they'd ask them to draw a picture. You know what the thousands of children, what they drew was a talking rainbow, which I just think is like, I know this sounds kind of strange, but a talking rainbow is probably more gentle than a huge bright light. But that's it's not like all these children could work together. So right. they all had some version of the talking rainbow is what you're saying. That's amazing. Right. right. And this feeling of love and even children who are inarticulate had the same characteristics. So I, I, I consider this evidence that you really should wrestle with. Yeah, well, it's interesting what you, I think you said, too, is that uh, because of modern medicine, we're able to bring more people back from, you know, apparent death. And that this this has revealed more of these near-death experiences because we actually are able to bring more people back. So it's I think that's interesting, too, that it's, oh, it's, it's, easy, it's easier to study. There's more of them because we are able to bring more people back from apparent death. I know, and it's reported, the similarities are reported all over the world, all different cultures, languages, all different ages, and striking similarities, and also kind of reveals a pattern. So, like, if this is evidence that you really have to pay attention to, because if it's right, if there is life after death, doesn't that completely change the game? Plato's right. It changes everything. Big time. So the pattern is usually the first phase is all pain is gone. All anxiety is gone. All fear is gone. And there's just peace. And people say uh, that they just popped out of their body, just like from the top of their head, they just popped out and now I'm dead. And the second phase is that they're floating above themselves and people can actually describe what was happening, what they did. They can go in the waiting room and report conversations people have. And like one doctor says, we have no way to explain this because I can't offer an explanation to you because there's no brain activity. To build a memory, you have to have at least a little bit of brain activity, but there's no brain activity so there's no scientific explanation. How can these people record conversations in the room, describe things, describe things outside the room, if there's no brain activity to build a memory? Maybe there's something more than just material brain. That That is truly interesting. And so what you're describing here are some of the common characteristics of these near-death experiences. The, the, right. the, okay. 
So the third phase is describing this complete blackness going through the tunnel. And 98% of all those who have had near-death experiences describe traveling through this tunnel. 2% of all those with near-death experience said it was frightening, but the rest didn't say it was frightening. And what I also think is really kind of interesting is that it's not linked to any personality or religion. It'd be nice to say that the data is clear that all Catholics go through this tunnel (laughs) or all Hindus or, you know, all the Irish, but there's no clear lines. It's everyone. Well, that would, that would be a great way for us to recruit people to the church, I guess, if, if we're the only ones that have this experience. So maybe we need to do some more research here, Father Len. I love the fact that everybody goes through, even before there's Christianity. But the fourth phase is, of course, the big one, that a light begins to shine. And sorry, something just fell outside my window. Well, Father Len, I was kind of... A, I, <laughs> I was imagining this out-of-body experience for you. I think there's some guy washing your windows or doing something on the outside of your building, and I was kind of fascinated and mesmerized by him. I was having a hard time paying attention to you. No, there's this huge... I mean, Coeur d'Alene is getting a ton of snow, and honest to God, it's pretty amazing. There's uh, icicles coming off our roof. This is a very old structure that is poorly designed... But the icicle, it's like twice my size. It's amazing. <laughs> well, that's it, not too big. You're not, a, you're not very tall, Father Lynn. That's not huge. 6'3", I know. <laughs> um, okay, back to this light. Yeah, enough, come on. Enough with my abnormally tall stature. Well, anyhow, some people say that there's this beautiful music or this feeling of unconditional love with this light. And it's surrounded by beautiful colors. And in front of the light, they felt just pure love. They just felt, but, and this is the part I like, there's this whole life review that their whole life beginning and end is all of a sudden folded in front of them. And not only can they see it, but they feel everything they caused, the joy, the pain that they caused other people, whatever they caused, they can feel. So, so all of these near, or well, the common characteristics of these near-death experiences is these people end up reviewing their lives. If they make it to the light. If they make, okay, that is amazing, isn't it? And they said they felt very, very happy and loved. But the amazing part is that, wow, I, I think about this, all the pain I've caused other people, I'm going to feel one day. And I'm a little terrified of that. <laughs> well, you should be, Father Len, as you self-described yourself as being a bit prickly. I am. I think that's an understatement in a way. Yeah, I am. But half of those uh, who are in this last stage in front of the light, what's kind of interesting is they were sent back either because they felt that their mission was incomplete or the light told them that they have to go back. Like one, I love this quote, I'm sending you back. You're not doing your purpose. And I just love that. You're not doing your purpose. Wow. I know. Or one woman, she died after childbirth. And her, what the light told her was, share what you've learned. And so they asked her, well, what did you learn? And she says, well, now my religion is love. That Which, is, I love it, that. It really 
it uh, is evidence of all kinds of stuff in the Bible that the Bible says, and it even kind of some of the same kind of characteristics and descriptions. And just think, what if a whole community of people gathered together and committed themselves that, no, we are going to teach love. We're going to be pushing each other to love more, to do works of love, to feed and care for other people. You know what you would call that community? You'd call it organized religion. (laughs) (laughs) Or just this idea that you're sent back because you're not fulfilling your purpose. For Catholics, we'd say that's a theology of confirmation. That God created us for a purpose. It's not just enough to say, well, I love God and other people. We're supposed to be fulfilling a purpose. But the most common denominator of near-death experiences is that life is all about love. Life after death is all about love. So that should be our main teaching. So I, the other thing I find, and just as a side, I like this guy named Kenneth Rings published his study from 2008 where he interviewed 21 blind people, 14 blind from birth, who reported near-death experiences. And here's the amazing part. The near-death experience is the same for sighted people as it is for the blind. That the light speaks to them just in the right language, just in the right tone. Also, the light speaks at the speed of light. Um, But all of them felt love, felt light, and saw colors many for the first time. So as one person said about the light, somebody said, well, was the light God? And the person replied, God just seems like too small of a word. (laughs) Really like, or this one woman, Amy, she was asked, she asked, uh, what religion is right? And she said, religion is a search for God. And those who make religion about little rules that only benefit themselves, misuse religion. And there's this one, I love this story about this preacher who has this near-death experiences. And he admits that most of his preaching was, you know, first of all about sex and more about politics. And he preached anger and who's going to get punished. And in front of the light, he realized all his preaching was wrong. He wasn't Like the light said, you weren't preaching about me. You were preaching politics. So when he's resuscitated, his whole ministry changes and he preaches love. And here's the amazing part of his story. He gets fired. He gets (laughs) fired because they didn't want to hear all this preaching about love. Um, So so they were so conditioned by his former preaching that his new new way of preaching, they didn't want to hear it. No, they only wanted to hear how they're better than other people and God hates those people. Oh my gosh. Um, That's amazing. The odd part is that those who go in front of the light, their beliefs do change. When asked, 73% of the people who had a near-death experience said their whole religious and life belief changed. Those who encountered the light, this being of light, 20 years later are practicing their religion and says that religion is extremely important, which I think is kind of amazing. So this place of life after death, what they found out is it's a place of love. It's also a place of community. It's also a place of joy. And suddenly all knowledge is available. So 
if it's about love and community and joy, shouldn't we be practicing that now? Yep. Uh, that would be called organized religion, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm being snarky. <laughs> Somebody said today, I don't believe in organized religion. My joke is always, we're not that organized. <laughs> you know, like if life after death is a place of community and love, shouldn't we bond together, you know, bind together and practice the, the community after death now? You know, yeah. it, it, all of these things you're describing in these common, you know, experiences and characteristics, it it does seem to uh, the people who come back that you're describing, they talk about love and stuff. But the two things that come into my mind, two words, is that they seem to you're describing people that are much more compassionate, less self-involved, not as selfish more objective about the effect they're having on other people than they would have before this near-death experience. It's almost like having a mirror shown uh, to you of yourself. You know, you see yourself in the mirror and you go, oh my God, I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not such a great person and maybe I need to, you know, pay attention. I know. And I kind of like, there's this one story about this um, guy who had very violent streak and after his near-death experience, he opens up a bakery. And he just speaks about he could just never commit violence again. Not after that. Or one guy, and I know I've told this story before. He has this um, near-death experience. And, you know, in front of the light, he can feel everything. And he tells a story, and I found this shocking, that he said, even the littlest thing where... He once was this, in this argument with his wife and they had a good marriage. They had a good marriage. But he said once when they're in a fight, he hit her and she left and she went to the grocery store and she was mean to the grocery clerk. And he said he could feel her terror when he hit her. He could feel how that grocery clerk felt. And all of that was what he had to feel, which makes you think, holy cow, in front of the light, I think we'd all be people of greater compassion and love if we could feel we caused other people. Yep. So anyhow, I just, like, I kind of wish I could have a near-death experience. Just Well, maybe uh, we can maybe oblige you somehow, Father Len. I'm not quite sure how we do it. that. <laughs> Not only what we did, but I noticed that like there's one woman who had been abused in childhood. She lived this kind of wild life and then like, calmed down, became this teacher. But in front of the light, what she discovered for the first time was how unique she was, that she was missing the rest of her life. So I this was when you say in front of the light from a near death experience that she had. You're right. That, she discovered just how unique she was. Wow. But, you well, know, there's also near-death ex, uh, experiences of people who um, had kind of hellish experiences. And like one atheist, he had this near-death experience where he saw the light from the distance. And he said, all I wanted to do was snuff out that light. <laughs> now, that's kind of amazing. So he comes back and they said, well, isn't that true? And he said, no, nah, it's probably just brain chemicals. <laughs> well, 
usually like I've been, I've had too much to drink occasionally. Those chemicals don't sharpen my perception. They cloud no. it. Yeah, for and sure. Like everybody's gone through some sort of surgery. You know, those chemicals don't increase your accuracy. They actually mess you up. Yep. So for, for atheists to say, well, it's just brain activity. In fact, I know I've mentioned this before, but you're not a big Harry Potter fan, but in Harry Potter, he has this kind of near-death experience. And at one point he asks uh, Dumbledore, he says, is this real or is it just happening in my head? And the reason why she wrote that in the book is that this very famous atheist from England had a near-death experience. And they said, well, isn't that some sort of evidence for you? And he said, well, no, it's just something that happened in my head. And that's when she thought, but if it happens in your head, all reality happens in your head. In your head. So why would that make it unreal? Um, That's just refusing to wrestle with the truth. Don't say that you're rational or work by evidence. If you only accept evidence that supports your conclusion. That's not how science works. So like, it is kind of amazing to me that some people can go to the light and still want to destroy the light or deny the light. But I think what it really shows is, well, number one, the effects is no fear of death. Secondly, this belief that we're all connected, that somehow this being of light connects us all. Third, God is ineffable that this being of light can't ever completely be described. So I I love doing theology, but theology is always a losing battle. Not until I get in front of the light. Hmm. Um, The other one is about love. You know, it, it all boils down to God is love. The being of light is love. Life is about love. Also this idea of like change in front of the light, we should be more compassionate, more religious, more caring about other people. I love that. So I know this sounds strange, but that's just near-death experiences scientifically. But in one sense, I kind of think, isn't all prayer like a near-death experience, kind of like a mild mini near-death experience? Or even uh, Pascal, the famous genius mathematician, has this mystical encounter with God it was kind of this near-death experience brought on by prayer Hmm. or this other genius, Emmanuel Swedenberg. He was a geologist. He has all these visions of heaven. So he starts to map out heaven with all these descriptions of heaven. But the point being is that, wow, that's a type of evidence that people should wrestle with. I love studying near-death experiences, not only because I think it disproves atheists, but because it challenges me and it challenges religion itself. Shouldn't we not be about petty little rules? We're all going to be standing in front of the light. We're going to be judged on whether religion was love or not. So I think uh, the message here, Father Len, is that maybe we want to imagine this incredibly bright light shining on us and what it might reveal. Yeah. So it's a great thing to wrestle with. It should inspire us. I love it. 
Well, you know, we always welcome comments from listeners and questions, and it's real easy to get those to us. You can just shoot us an email at questions at wwgshow.com. That's questions at wwgshow.com. And we hope you'll share your favorite episodes if you're enjoying the Wrestling With God show. And gosh, I think a lot of people are because our podcast just keeps growing and growing and growing. It's kind of amazing, really. So we appreciate you sharing the podcast with your friends and family and helping us grow. And we hope you'll join us next time as we continue our journey, climbing the mountain of life, searching for truth, meaning, and purpose in our lives, and imagining what we might be like if this big, bright light is shining on us and revealing who we really are. Thanks for listening. See you next time.